is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is Megan Bojarski. Hi. And we are your hosts throughout this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. In this episode, we are kicking off our third season titled Adventures in Literature as Disney moves into the first half of the 1950s. This was a period of newfound success for the studio and most of the films we discussed this season will carry forward the tradition of Ichabod and Toad uh, being adapted from famous works of literature. This season will end with The Vanishing Prairie and we have several bonus episodes planned to set us up for season four as well as dive into two of the films that we'll be talking about in our main episodes this season. But more on that a bit later. For today, we'll be deep diving into one of Disney's major classics in the animated canon, Cinderella. And so joining us today is Janae Kay. Janae, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I guess I'll start my little introduction. Currently a second year at Syracuse in the Communication and Rhetorical Studies Master's Program. A lot of my research interests include analyzing pop culture, social media discourse, and kind of the intersection between race, sex, and gender. But previously, before joining my MA program, I have a lot of experience working in media. I worked at Paramount for a bit, where we did a lot of audience research and analysis that would then create shows and movies and televisions and networks. So I'm very happy to be here and excited to bring my expertise. Yeah, we're really glad that you decided to join us. I know that I have been kind of our big academic side. I'll be citing uh, sources incessantly today. And so I'm really glad that we could have someone first from my master's program, my alma mater, and somebody who has experience in the entertainment industry to really kind of bring us into this. So just kind of a question for all of us, but starting with you, Janae, what has been your personal experience with Cinderella before you were maybe watching or researching it for this podcast? That's a really good question. Um, growing up, I didn't really grow up in a Disney household, but I remember watching Cinderella when I was in elementary school on like rainy days, we would play like really old Disney films when we couldn't go outside. So that was like my introduction to Disney, but at home, I didn't really have one. And not to show my age a little bit, I grew up like with the more like recreations of Cinderella. So that was always like so interesting to see. Like I didn't grow up with the original one, like another Cinderella story and that. So kind of the history I've seen a lot. Um, so that's a little bit of how I grew up with Cinderella. That's actually really similar to my backstory with Disney. As some of our common listeners might remember, I did not grow up in a Disney household either. I oddly got into it in middle and high school because I had a really weird um, middle school history teacher who decided to teach us history through Disney movies, which 
is questionable, but might be part of why my research interests were how like history shows up in pop culture. I actually, Cinderella is one of those few Disney movies that I did actually experience at a younger age. My aunt Brenda bought me and my sister dolls from the Disney princess collection. I had Cinderella. So while it wasn't like the most important movie in my life, I actually, I loved Sleeping Beauty the most or on that in several episodes. I had this kind of early connection with it. And then of course, you know, the image of the castle and, you know, the songs in it, Bippity Boppity Boo, uh, which is actually Bibbidi or something. I don't know. I always thought it was peas. It's bees. So that and, you know, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes are some of those songs that I feel like you couldn't really escape. So while I was more of a like Disney channel rather than Disney, kid, Cinderella still had kind of a huge impact on me, especially like you said, with like the endless, uh, a Cinderella story, another Cinderella story, and all of those kinds of things. Yeah, for me, I am the resident Disney kid and non-academic, <laughs> I should say. Uh, so I, I grew up on this despite my household being myself and my brother as kids. My mom was all in on making sure that we saved every VHS possible from entering the Disney vault. And so Cinderella was definitely one that we had. It's one where like, I don't remember the first time I watched it. I've definitely talked about it in many other episodes that I used to watch the Disney sing-along tapes on repeat. And I feel like I had some of those before some of these were actually like available on VHS, at least in my lifetime. And so, like, I knew, like, Bibbidi Bobby Boo was on one of those tapes. And so, like, I, I know that song very, very well. But this is one that I don't, re I, like I said, I don't remember the first time I saw it. And so I've just kind of always been aware of it. And it's never been a favorite of mine, but I will say, and this is probably something I will repeat many times over the course of this episode, uh, I really took, had a new appreciation for it, coming to it through this project and watching all of the other movies that we've watched for this and then getting to this point and I, it just a lot of things just clicked for me with this movie even before I did any reading on it because uh, as regular listeners will know I watched the movie and then do my research Megan starts her research and then watches the movie and so going in cold even I was really impressed by how much this struck me this time uh, so definitely more on that but that's that's my overall Cinderella experience I guess. As, as we'll discuss later, this wasn't as detailed as some of the earlier movies, but one of my first notes that I wrote when I was watching was the return of depth and detail, finally, because the package films kind of skipped over a lot of those. And we'll talk about how technically there isn't detail in a lot of the shots, but they, they kind of trick you into thinking there is. But being able to watch this after watching so many was really great, and I think that getting a lot of out of being able to watch them in order. And it's also kind of great to hear Janae's perspective who has not been watching them all in order, but can just give us more of kind of a fresh, more isolated perspective on what just this one movie said to her. Oh yeah. I definitely excited to contribute in that way. And also kind of going back to Ryan's point, I may have not been like a Disney kid growing up, but I really do appreciate a good sing-along. And that's the one thing I can definitely attest to. I love like a, a song I can sing to. And I think that's what makes it so memorable. So 
even if I don't remember, like I did rewatch Cinderella uh, just for this episode, but in general, I think Disney and their tracks are really good. I was, I've definitely been humming or singing the songs from this movie for days now uh, because I actually started watching the movie a couple days ago and just finished it again today. And they're, they're going on repeat, which I'm sure is not an uncommon experience for any of our listeners who are maybe uh, watching along with us. And we'll definitely talk more about the music in depth a bit later, but I will say, I feel like this may be, I'm probably wrong for saying this, but just watching it, it felt like this was the first movie that we've talked about that had like multiple iconic songs in it, which again, I'm probably overlooking a bunch of stuff or, you know, uh, not being really strict about what I consider iconic, but at the very least, it's been a while since we watched one of these where there were multiple songs that were like worthy of an Academy Award nomination or, you know, being sung along to or whatever. That There are multiple songs you could kind of walk out and be like, yeah, I love the song from that movie. So, Yeah, I actually, I do think this might be the first one with multiples because knowing which of the songs got nominated for the Academy Award, uh, which spoilers, y'all will find out in an hour or two was not the song I would have expected, just having heard all of them. There's just, everyone who's listening, strap in. There's so much to talk about in the story, the animation, the music, the company as a whole. Our notes are longer than ever on this one, and we have a lot to talk about. So let's go ahead and dive right into where this movie came from and kind of what its inspirations and meanings were. Just to start us off with the question, why now? Like we've said before, after Snow White, the company put a lot of different movies into production. And Cinderella was one of these. It had been, you know, being worked on for a very long time. And the question kind of came, okay, when are we going to put out Cinderella? What movie are we going to put out first? What's going on with all of this? By 1947, the studio was over $4 million in debt. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. And according to Ali Johnston, Walt had said, quote, God, yeah, this place is always hanging on one picture. We just can't do that. The goddamn bankers and the stockholders and the union, it's almost more than we can survive. So for those of you who know Disney history, you've probably heard that this is the movie that saves the studio. And there's some, some, some questions about whether it 100% did or didn't. But there was certainly the sense within the studio that they needed that picture that could save it all, that could make enough money to really push everything into action. They were specifically looking for another Snow White, for something that would bring back, you know, the popular esteem, the academic critical reception, and of course the money. And there was a lot of discussion about how the audiences wanted that too. According to animator Frank Thomas, Quote, Walt would meet people outside, critics and so on. And people said, why don't you do something like Snow White? That, you know, this was something that the people were asking for. That after all of the package films that we have lovingly watched and learned about, and I at least am very glad to be done with, I think a lot of audiences were, were ready to go back to what they loved most about Disney and what by our time became really iconic, which is the princesses. And 
the big thing here is that they weren't totally sure. They kept going back and forth. We've talked before about Walt trying different industries and different kinds of movies. Uh, and when it came down to this, they really came down to the question of, are we going to put out Alice in Wonderland or are we going to put out Cinderella? They actually got all of the music recorded. They got storyboards. They were, you know, getting focus groups, getting groups of employees to decide on which one was which. And there's a quote from Wooly Reitherman, who apparently told Walt how much he liked the storyboard and was then told years later that had he not done that, Walt might have just said, well, let's, let's just get rid of the company. Let's just go into bankruptcy. This is too hard. So as much as Cinderella seems, you know, integral and kind of a foregone conclusion to us, the studio needed Cinderella, but they didn't necessarily feel sure that this was the movie for it. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering, you know, when we we started this whole podcast in our very first episode, one of our favorite Walt quotes was, you can't top pigs with pigs. Talking about people demanding sequels to the Three Little Pigs cartoon that they did. And I think, in a way, that might be some of the hesitation around going back to a princess movie, which wasn't even a thing, a concept that existed at the time. Like, now we think of princess movies because we have a, a bunch of them, but this was the sec this is the second one. And so I think, especially for Walt, who was always looking to the next idea and his his thought around, well, we can't redo the same thing that we've already done because it just won't be, you know, it'll be derivative no matter how we try to do it. And so I think there is that hesitation on his part, but again, that desperation of needing kind of a surefire hit. And that that is all wrapped up in why Cinderella, I think. For those of you who are listening and want to learn more, I highly recommend that Disney, Disney lovers get a copy of The Disney Princess, A Celebration of Art and Creativity by Charles Solomon. There's a lot of great information. It shows how the concept art translated to the screen. I just find it to be an amazing reference book. And sadly, I won't be able to reference it more than one time after this episode until we get to the late 80s and early 90s. Because again, the concept of the princess movie was not not nearly as known as it is today simply because so much of that was introduced in you know the disney renaissance of the 90s and i can't wait to talk about michael eisner that's that's gonna be <laughs> a fun time on this podcast so you know as, as we're talking about this and the sort of trying to make a decision within the disney company about what to do they were, you know, we're going back and forth between Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. What do you guys think, like, would have happened if they had gone with Alice in Wonderland and not made Cinderella? I think that there's this really interesting question going back to you can't top pigs with pigs. Because, and we'll talk about this slightly more in a minute, Walt had put out a short of Cinderella two decades before this. Walt had put out his, you know, hybrid animation Alice in Wonderland comedies. So both of those would be him revisiting these classic stories that he had already worked on before. That being said, I do feel like the audiences wanted something familiar. And so I feel like the classic Cinderella story, which has so many kind of parallel motifs to Snow White, was probably the better choice compared to the the acid, uh, I'm, I'm spacing on the word, the acid trip 
<laughs> yeah, the very psychedelic, like, wild that psychedelic. ride that is Alice in Wonderland. By nature. That's not necessarily critiquing the movie. Like, it's just a weird story. And the Disney movie leaned into the weird. But I think that after the war and after the package films, audiences really were yearning for Snow White again. And I think that Cinderella filled that gap. So while I like both movies, and I think that both would have been well-received, I do think Cinderella was the better choice to go first. Besides just, you know, plus one to everything that you just said, I think the other piece of it is the songs. Because as good as the songs in Alice in Wonderland are, and they're very good, they feel more contextual to that movie and that story. Like, the songs here move the story forward, but they, there's more breakout potential, I think, for the songs that ended up being included in Cinderella. And I think that's, even as we alluded to already in this episode, I think that's one major reason why this has become such an enduring classic and why it was such a big hit at the time. And I will piggyback off of everything said. I absolutely do believe that Cinderella was the best choice. I actually am a pretty big fan of Alice in Wonderland, but just kind of hearing everything and thinking about it more, I definitely feel like Cinderella is the best choice. The one thing I will say is I had done some research prior to joining and I always kind of find my way on conspiracy ways about Disney. And so like I had read something really quickly before about like Alice could potentially be like Cinderella's mother or like placing them in the same universe. And I know that's very random, but it was just something I think about all the time. I just want to jump on that theory. I, I didn't necessarily make that connection, but I will say that young Cinderella looks identical to Alice as we're going to see her. I kept wondering if Aurora, Sleeping Beauty, was Cinderella's mom. Because when Cinderella comes down in the pink dress, it has the exact same outline of Aurora's color-changing dress. And there's some intriguing stuff going on with you know, whose castle is whose. I'm sure they're all meant to be completely distinct, but I I love all the connected fairy tale whose parents and cousins and whatnot are who, you know, is Arzan secretly the brother of Anna and Elsa whose parents survived the shipwreck. I, I love all of those things. Oh, it's definitely fun to think about. And yeah, that's kind of where I saw some of the theories saying they look exactly alike. And so just kind of thinking of animation in that way. This is definitely another kind of big step forward, I think, for what I sort of loosely call the Disney house style. Thanks especially to the involvement of the nine old men and things becoming more efficient. And there's a lot more to say on, on that. But I think this is another, this is one of the reasons why I think some of those theories pop up because they are essentially the same people working on all of these movies. You know, as, as Megan alluded to, Cinderella is a very popular, just a popular story in sort of, worldwide culture there are analogs in a bunch of different world cultures but you know at least for film adaptations there was a silent film in 1911 starring Florence Labadey uh, there was another one in 1914 starring Mary Pickford we talked about Walt's Laughogram cartoon in 1922 which was his first take on Cinderella which actually has the prince actively seeking out Cinderella which is makes him a lot more of an active character than he is in this in the feature movie uh, that we'll be talking about. And according to Disney scholar Amy M. Davis, uh, Prince Charming is the most passive male character in the entire Disney film canon, which I think is is interesting. 
you know, and even as early as 1926 with Ella Cinders, we have like a modern retelling that was based on a comic strip that was inspired by the Charles Perrault version, which is the same version that Disney loosely adapted and added a lot to, as we'll, as we'll talk about. In 1934, Poor Cinderella was Fleischer Studios' first color cartoon and the only appearance of Betty Boop in color uh, during that era. Basically a retelling of the classic story with Betty Boop in the role of Cinderella, which was a very popular sort of template that they used for her cartoons. And a lot of other cartoons were just like, here's this character that you know in a story that they hadn't appeared before. Very similar to Mickey and the Beanstalk. It's not, you know, it's a very popular way to just make cartoons easy by taking a familiar story and then throwing a familiar character into it. Just as a point of note, that strip uh, in 1934 was made with the two-strip Cinecolor process because Disney still had the exclusive rights to the three-strip Technicolor process. Again, we talked about way back in our very first episode. There was also Cinderella Meets Fella, which was a 1938 Mary Melodies cartoon featuring Egghead, who we better know as Elmer Fudd as Prince Charming. And obviously it's kind of a send-up of that story. There was also a modern musical version called First Love in 1939 with Deanna Durbin and Robert Stack. There was a bit of a dust-up between First Love and this the Disney Cinderella because of a rights issue, which is weird to think about Cinderella not just being like a public domain thing that anybody could make any version that they wanted to. But First Love did receive Academy Award nominations for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Music. So I haven't, I haven't seen any of these other versions. I did briefly watch a bit of the Laughogram version. It's like eight minutes long. And, you know, it's a very kind of, I don't want to say like standard, like there's not really anything particularly interesting about that adaptation other than the fact that it is a Walt Disney cartoon. Yeah, I haven't seen really any of the cinematic adaptations. I did read a little bit of the Ella Cinder's comic strip, which was actually insanely popular. Uh, it actually ran from June 1925 to December 1961. So this is again one of those comic strips that really makes an impact. I feel like in the modern day, like some of us might read the car like the comics in the newspaper, but most of us just like look at memes on the internet. It's kind of hard to oversell how important they were at this point. I mean, we've talked before with the Latin American pieces about how important it was for Jose Carioca and Panchito, how you know important it was for them to have successful comic strips because that made it so that they kept reappearing and had, you know, movies being made up to this century. You know, it was just one of those situations where we see that Cinderella was really everywhere in the early 20th century. You know, between the silent films and the comic strips and the movies, everyone wanted a piece of it. And I think that it's funny because now the only ones that we really know and talk about are Disney's versions. Yeah, and I think part of that is obviously based on how successful this particular movie is, but I think it is also just the, I don't know about unique, but the, the really successful way that Disney has marketed themselves. And, you know, Cinderella Castle is just like a concept that almost almost supersedes this movie in some ways, almost supersedes the theme park that it's a, the centerpiece of. In one of the, the, the making of bonus feature that I watched, they were just talking about how like one of one of the reasons why that they think it was popular is because it was such a familiar story. It was a story that everybody knew, 
but then Disney puts a twist on it by making this movie like 50 to 60% mice. Yeah, the Tom and Jerry of it all is is intriguing, definitely. <laughs> One more thing that we want to talk about in just kind of giving everyone the context of this movie. Like I said, Disney had created the 1922 Laughagram version. But this one, this movie specifically was based on the French uh, adaptation by Charles Perrault in 1697. One of the kind of huge things about Cinderella, it is one of the undead dragons and Cinderella. Uh, there's a version of them in literally every culture. We have versions of Cinderella that go almost before we have written history. There's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of versions, but Perrault was the one who added the really iconic parts that were made that much more iconic by this movie. For instance, he added the fact that the carriage was made out of a pumpkin. He added the fairy godmother, who is so important. And he's also credited as the creator of the glass slipper. Although there is some debate over whether that was a translation error or was a deliberate creative choice. I will say that notably the ending is one of the points that's kind of deviated away from in Disney. Disney didn't really choose to go with the French or the German version. Perot's version actually ended in Cinderella forgiving her stepsisters and finding them good husbands, which is a very nice, happy take on it, especially given that, you know, in Snow White, we murdered uh, the evil family member. In a similar vein, the Grimm version ends with Cinderella kind of sicking the birds on her stepfamily to peck their eyes out. Uh, and Disney kind of scared away from both of those in more of a, like, Cinderella gets a happy life, the others get left at their manor with nobody to cook and clean for them, and that's, that's enough karma. We don't need to kill everyone, just the cat. Just the cat. He's the one who gets our very evil queen from Snow White-esque death scene. So according to some sources, at least, this was the first movie that all nine of Walt's so-called nine old men worked on. Just a reminder, because this is something I didn't really figure out until I was a lot older. They were named that way as a joke because they were very young at the time that that name for their group uh, was made up. So obviously, like mostly what I see of them as people are interviews from them before they passed away where they were actually old men. And so it didn't click for me until like doing this project. I was like, oh yeah, no, they were, it was a joke that they were the old men because they were some of the most senior people at the studio, but a lot of them were, you know, in their late twenties and early thirties. At least this was one of the things that I had read that um, president at the time, uh, maybe it was FDR. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was, F I believe it was, I think it was FDR. No, we're going to say FDR if I'm wrong. Spam our name all over the internet and tell us that we're wrong and share share this uh, podcast. But he had been talking about uh, the jury being filled with, like the Supreme Court, uh, being filled with old men, nine old men. Uh, they were still having the same debates that we have today about whether the Supreme Court should be expanded and, you know, the level of diversity that needed to be on the court. So he had kind of derogatorily named the Supreme Court the nine old men who are out of touch with the world. And Walt kind of took that and spun it a completely different way within the studio. Uh, it was FDR, by the way. So good job. So really quickly, because I feel like we have, we've mentioned the term nine old men. We have 
I believe, mentioned all of them by name at one point or another. But because this, like I said, may be the first movie of a few where they actually were all very much involved in the production process and in making the movie, I thought it would be good to just give a quick rundown of who they are exactly. And so this is in alphabetical order by last name. Uh, So we have Les Clark, uh, who was known as the Mickey Mouse Master. Uh, He had joined Disney back in 1927 and primarily worked on Mickey. So along with Ub Iwerks, he was right there from the beginning working on Mickey cartoons. He was a directing animator on Cinderella, uh, but he, he was known for his work with Mickey. Second is Mark Davis, who started in 1935 during Snow White. He later went on to develop and animate Bambi and Thumper in Bambi, as well as Tinkerbell, Maleficent. Corella DeVille is maybe his like crowning achievement in some ways. After that, he went to work on everything Disneyland related, and he's actually responsible for the character designs uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean and for at least 50% of the Haunted Mansion. Next is Ollie Johnston, who we referenced earlier in this episode. He joined Disney in 1935, working on Snow White. Uh, He went on to author The Illusion of Life with Frank Thomas. Uh, That was a book they co-wrote together that is like the foundational text when people like take animation classes at like CalArts and stuff. His work includes Mr. Smee and Peter Pan, the stepsisters in this movie, the district attorney in Ichabod and Mr. Toad that we talked about last week, or well, last week as we're recording, but further back than that, if if you're listening to this, because podcasting is also time travel. Fourth is Mitt Call, who uh, also started while working on Snow White back in 1934. He was known for his heroic characters, uh, such as Pinocchio, Peter Pan, Tigger, also Slewfoot Sue from Melody Time, Shere Khan, and, and, a, and a bunch of other you know, really iconic characters. It's fun that we can just reference like Slewfoot Sue and Melody Time and expect our listeners to know what that is, because we did a whole episode about that. <laughs> And it really funny that that seems to be like the one thing from the package era that like keeps getting brought up. Uh, and I couldn't stop thinking about her as we watched the bustles of all of the women competing for the prince. And Cinderella did not have an over-exaggerated bustle. So she apparently learned the lesson that you don't want to bounce to the moon uh, with your unreasonable bustle. <laughs> bustle. It's just, a, it's just a weird word that we've said way too many times on this podcast. Next up is Ward Kimball, who joined Disney in 1934, also during the production of Snow White. He was responsible for Jimmy Cricket uh, in Pinocchio, and then Lucifer, Jacques, and Gus in Cinderella, and later goes on to work on the Mad Hatter and the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. His specialty was comic characters, like that, that's what he was known for, sort of his comedic take on characters. Eric Larson joined in 1933. He's probably one of the best technical animators by most accounts. He was responsible for Peg in Leading the Tramp, uh, The Vultures in the Jungle Book, the Flight Over London sequence in Peter Pan, the, the animated characters in Song of the South. Uh, and because of his talent and his overall personality, he was given the task to spot and train new animators at Disney uh, in the 70s. So in one of these interviews that I watched, people talk about him fondly because the people who went on to make movies like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Lion King worked directly with Eric Larson, and he was kind of their link back to this generation of animators. We also had John Lounsbury, uh, who also started in 1935, and he worked under Norm Ferguson, also known as Fergie. Lounsbury, who was nicknamed Lounds by his fellow animators, was a strong draftsman who inspired many animators over the years. 
he was really good at the squashy, stretchy feel. So he animated Jay Worthington, Foulfellow, and Gideon in Pinocchio, Ben Alligator in Fantasia, and George Darley and Peter Pan, among again, among many others. Wooly Reitherman, who we also mentioned previously in this episode, joined Disney in 1933 as an animator. In the late 1950s, he was then promoted to director. He also produced all of the animated Disney films after Walt's death until Reitherman retired himself. And some of his work includes Monster the Whale and Pinocchio, The Headless Horseman, and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. He also directed the Sleeping Beauty sequence, which features Prince Philip's escape from Maleficent's castle and the big battle at the end when she becomes a dragon. One of his contributions to Cinderella was the amazing uh, sequence of the mice trying to get the key up the staircase, which, especially on this watch, really jumped out at me as something really special. I have a quote here from Brad Bird, who uh, directed... The Iron Giant and both Incredibles movies, uh, as well as uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, talking about that sequence. Someone else that people don't, I think, talk about enough is, is Wooly Ritherman. He did um, a lot of the stuff on the stairs, didn't right, he? Right, yeah. He did Which the, is the mice going up the brilliantly stairs staged. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And you are so rooting for these guys to make it. And the fact that they cut to these points of view where you see this endless staircase from the mice's point of view, it just makes it an incredible obstacle that has to be surmounted. And an audience just gets bent out of shape when, when they finally make it there and the cat covers them up. The audience goes, ah! You know, because they so want it. So when, when it finally gets delivered to them, it is the most satisfying thing. And then the ninth alphabetically at least, of the nine old men, I don't think they actually had numbers, was Frank Thomas. He also joined in 1934. Uh, he, again, co-authored The Illusion of Life with Ollie Johnston. His work includes The Queen of Hearts, Captain Hook, and Lady Tremaine in this movie. Uh, and I also have a quote from Frank Thomas talking about how the reason that this movie works in some ways is because Cinderella and Lady Tremaine are drawn as quote unquote, real characters, and the rest of the characters around them are all cartoons. Uh, so he sort of explains that in his own voice. Cinderella was being handled as a real girl. The stepsisters is cartoon real girls. The mice were cartoons, the cat was cartoon, the horse, the dog, all of them were cartoon characters. But the thing that made the picture work was the stepmother. She was the force through the whole thing. She had to be believable. She had to look real to the audience, even though she was far from real. And she had to match in drawing Cinderella and the stepsisters. And so it's, I just wanted to kind of recap exactly who these guys were. So when we bring their names up, uh, you may, hope, may remember who they are. And as we'll, we'll keep continuing to try to credit their individual contributions as much as we can, given all the things that we have to cover in all of these episodes. I think one of the things that's really important to take away overall is these guys all basically joined Disney to work on Snow White. And now here we are, you know, 15 years later. And Cinderella is sort of the result of them all doing these package films, the war propaganda, just drawing and drawing and drawing and, and using the shorter form stuff to experiment more and try out different techniques and different art styles and things. And so I feel like one of the things that struck me with this is like Cinderella feels a, just a more mature work than anything that we've talked about so far. And I feel like you can start to see it a little bit in Ichabod and Toad, 
but this feels even like a bigger step forward than that. I feel like if you, you know, if we're able, and I don't know that we are, to imagine a world in which Disney hadn't become everything it is today, there was definitely, especially among some people, the idea that maybe Disney was a fluke. Maybe Snow White was a fluke, because even though they had put out, in my opinion, some amazing technical movies, nothing had the success that Snow White did. And so Cinderella ends up being kind of this proof that it wasn't just beginner's luck. This was the culmination of their work, not an, another movie that kind of proved that they didn't still have it. There's an argument to be made that Cinderella not only saves the Disney studio and makes it make sure that it continues in the future, but sort of saves the idea of feature length animation as a medium. Because, you know, as we've been talking about for our entire last series, like this is the first time they've made one story that goes for, for over an hour, not counting, you know, the technically nonfiction victory through air power. You know, this is the first one that they've done that goes over an hour since Dumbo, which, you know, came out right on the eve of the war. And again, I, I don't use these terms in a way that's like very, you know, a strong barrier between them. But, you know, if you're a person who wants to distinguish between the word movie and the word film, by parallel, I feel like Dumbo is a cartoon and Cinderella is an animated film. If we're if we're if we're being sort of very you know particular about that, not I think those two things are interchangeable personally, but like this feels like a more serious work uh, overall than Dumbo, even though it is very fun and lighthearted and has a lot of cartoon elements to it. There's a there's a level of artistry here that just isn't really present there. As we you know start to dip our toes into the idea of the production of this, I think that one of the major benefits that Cinderella had was that it had Mary Blair in, you know, some of her heydays. I'm not going to even say this is her heydays because they go on much longer than this. You know, Mary Blair's artistic direction and some of the story elements that were so successful in the first few films from one of my favorite names, Bianca Magili. And if I'm butchering her name again, I'm so sorry. But part of that is that the story development of this film went on for about 10 years. And just to give you guys a summary of it, so by early 1938, they had basically been planning on making another short, and they realized that it was just too complicated for a, a true short. So they suggested that it could be a potential animated feature film, starting with a 14-page outline that was written by Al Perkins. Two years later, a second treatment was done by Dana Kofi and Bianca Magili. Magili is the one who is primarily credited for it, and her version included, for instance, the importance of the mouse characters, which becomes such a big thing in this. A cruel cat that was owned by the Step family, although the cat changed names between treatments, and the kind of critical scene of the stepmother locking Cinderella in a cellar, which then became the attic, which was one of Disney's kind of biggest contributions to the archetypal story. So she had worked out a lot of those details and how to stretch this story that everybody knew that had been in so much of pop culture into something where there were comedic bits, there were gags, there were things we didn't know how they were going to end, 
And they kept kind of raising the stakes of, you know, how much pain does Cinderella have to go through before she can finally get the happy ending that we know is coming. By September 1943, Walt had assigned Dick Humor and Joe Grant to begin working on Cinderella as story supervisors. They were given a preliminary budget of $1 million. This was kind of an odd choice. Uh, neither of them were fans of the story. They thought it was pretty boring and were mostly concerned with the fact that it had low stakes. As far as they were concerned, everybody knows that Cinderella gets to go to the ball. Everybody knows that she and the prince fall in love and everybody knows that eventually she will be found to be the one who fits the slipper. So they didn't really think there was much of anything to this story. That being said, uh, between Bianca Magulai, Mary Blair, and several other kind of important figures with this film, they kind of introduce these injected moments where the audience genuinely starts to doubt it, where they wonder, you know, how, how bad is this going to be? Again, going back to that sequence, they finally get the key up the stairs, and here comes the cat with a cup to trap the mice. You know, there were just repeated moments where Cinderella's fate becomes in doubt, even though we all know how it's supposed to end, how it's probably going to end. So this becomes kind of a tug of war with it, where the people who were actually in charge of the story maybe didn't think it was the best thing, but a lot of the people working under them had some great ideas for it. Just continuing with the wild story of how the whole narrative came together, 1945, Let's throw back to a couple episodes ago. Maurice Rapp was hired to work on Song of the South and make it less racist. But then the story writer didn't want to make it less racist, so they kicked him off of it. And he got bounced over to Cinderella. He felt like it was really important for Cinderella to be a very active character. Uh, so he said, quote, My thinking was, you can't have somebody who comes in and changes everything for you. You can't have it delivered on a platter. You've got to earn it. So in my version, the fairy godmother said, it's okay till midnight, but from then on, it's up to you. I made her earn it. And what she had to do to achieve it was rebel against her stepmother and stepsisters to stop being a slave in her own home. So I had a scene where they're ordering her around and she throws the stuff back at them. She revolts, so they lock her up in the attic. I don't think anyone took my idea very seriously, though. Uh, that quote comes from Mouse Under Glass, Secrets of Disney Animation and Theme Parks by David Koenig. You know, that goes back to some of these things that we always talk about with Cinderella. Was everything handed to her? How much did the godmother did do? How much did she do? You know, these were all questions while they were building the story. They continue to kind of grow with it. In spring of 1946, Disney held three story meetings and subsequently received treatments from Ted Sears, Homer Brightman, and Harry Reeves, which were dated for March 24th, 1947. After Fun and Fancy Free was released, Disney decided to go all in on Cinderella. And according to a quote from the Queens of Animation, Walt finally started to seem like his old self again, you know, really participating in the story meetings and liking what was going on. By January of 1948, the cat and mouse sequences had begun to grow. Uh, according to Bill Peet, without the intrigue of the mice and the cat, you could tell the story in seven minutes. 
This is really kind of a building process that happened over literally 10 years of growing from a fairly simple, well-known story to something that they could really, really grow with. Walt eventually left the studio in 1948 and 1949 uh, so that he could learn more about trains and so that he could work on Treasure Island in England, which meant that the movie largely had to finish without him. Uh, there's some bitterness, I think, in some of the interviews uh, with some of the nine old men who felt that they were kind of abandoned at the end of the project, especially after Walt had seemed so briefly excited. But if you go back to our last few episodes, the studio was just not going well. Walt kept trying things. He kept getting shot down. And so I think Walt did what Walt does, and he decided to travel and to leave and hope that things kind of resolved without him. All of that finally kind of ended with production being finished by October 13th, 1949. This was a super long process. A lot of changes made along the way. I think that the final film bears kind of the genius of all of these different players who had their hands on it over the last decade. Yeah, and I think that becomes clear the more you read up on the production and the more you hear people who were involved or you know knew the people who were involved, you can really see how much of an iterative process this was. Some of it did actually remind me of the of Dumbo where we talked about in that episode where they did so much good work conceptualizing the movie and storyboarding it and planning it out. By the time they actually went to go and animate it, it was sort of a breeze. And I get a very similar sense about this movie that they had spent so long talking about it and refining it and evolving it and smoothing it out. But like, it almost felt like Walt didn't need to be there for the finish of this project because, I mean, one, it more or less finished on budget which Walt being involved was always bad for Disney movies trying to stay under budget in this time because they'd animate something and Walt would be like, that doesn't look quite right, go and redo it. And I think these guys sort of being left to their own devices and finishing on their own maybe helped it sort of go a little bit smoother than it might have. Yeah, there's a great quote from one of uh, Walt's biographies that says that he would describe Roy at various points in the 50s as having his Cinderella smile on which meant that a movie didn't go wildly over budget and made a ton of money. So maybe you're right. Maybe Walt did need to leave just to make sure that this didn't go, you know, horrendously over budget like some of his other passion projects. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's also to the testament of the, the long development process. But by the time they went to draw it, they had talked it to death almost, you know. And so, again, I think those two things combined probably made it so that Walt being there was maybe the best the best thing that could have happened. <laughs> you know, one of the things that Maurice Raff talked about, you know, Maurice Raff, noted communist, by the way, <laughs> one of the things that he mentioned in his work on this project was that Cinderella, you know, and I think broadly, not necessarily just this version, but broadly has the reputation of being a sort of passive protagonist, especially, you know, in the Disney version, especially compared to Ariel and Belle and Jasmine and, you know, the, the, the 90s princesses, uh, do you think that reputation is deserved? I, I am split. I will say, and I said this with Snow White, I think that it has been exaggerated how passive they are because Cinderella certainly does the work here. You know, she asked to be able to go to the ball. When she was given pushback, she 
you know, continued to fight for it. She did the chore. She did everything she could until she couldn't do it anymore and she needed the fairy godmother to step in. That being said, I would argue that this is not Cinderella's story. This is the king's story. He is the most active character in this movie. He wants grandkids and he orchestrates a ball and he orchestrates the idea of searching down the woman who can fit the shoe. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like Cinderella does fall into a somewhat passive role because she is nowhere near the most active character in her story. But I don't think that she deserves quite as much of a view that she's completely uh, dependent on the people in her life as she gets. I definitely want to follow up on that, Megan. You make such a good point. And I definitely feel kind of split as well. But I like as I'm starting to think about it more, I think that it almost seemed... And I don't know if I'm saying this right, um, but kind of like profitable to believe that she was very like passive and had something to overcome. And instead of like, you know, realizing like everything she tried and she tried until she needed help. And I think that, and this might kind of like jump ahead a little bit, but it's like reflective a lot in like culture too of like now so many people want to have that Cinderella moment or like be like Cinderella instead of the other Disney princesses because like it's all about putting in the effort to yield what you want, but still kind of like admitting that there is some passivity within it. So yeah, that's actually like a really good point you brought up. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's there's always some some truth to that, but obviously this story is not necessarily set in a, a real place or time, but you get the sense that like she doesn't have a lot of options besides potential marriage and... Her stepmother is very good at literally keeping her under under locking key. Like I don't know, I don't know what exactly she could do differently, but I do think that the way that she is written at least gives her a decent amount of agency. Like, and you can kind of get the sense that she is doing her best to tolerate this treatment with the hopes of somehow getting out of the situation. And I I also think that Raph's point about like all right, the fairy godmother is going to sort of like literally like get her to the ball. But then like, you know, it's not like, oh, when you arrive, the prince is going to fall in love with you, you know, and then happily ever after. It's like, okay, like you have until midnight to do your thing. And then after that, good luck. So I think, you know, I I do think those changes to the story help. But I, you know, there's only so much she can do. But, you know, I I understand where that reputation comes from, for sure. I think that, you know, for this question, probably the most critical scene to me is right before the work song, when all of the mice and to some extent the birds are talking about the fact that Cinderella is trying so hard. She fought back. She got a promise that if she was able to get her chores done and get a good outfit, that she could go to the ball. And she is doing the work. She is doing absolutely everything she can. And yet the world is against her. And sometimes there's just nothing you can do. I actually kind of really like that. It's not that she was sitting around waiting to be saved. It's that she was doing everything that was available to her. And it just wasn't enough because the system was built against her. And I think that that's a point that people don't want to talk about enough when they're talking about Cinderella. 
And I do think it's interesting that like her goal in going to the ball is literally like, I want to have a nice time outside of my house. Like she's not like, oh, if I go to the ball, the prince is going to fall in love with me and then I'll get out of the situation. You know what I mean? Like she's not, she's not like banking on that even having, like she doesn't even realize it's the prince until, until much later. So I also kind of like that detail that it's like she literally just wants to participate in society is like her main goal in going to the ball. Like she just wants to have a nice time and get out of the house and maybe talk to some people who aren't her step family, you know, and then everything else that happens sort of happens by chance. And I think we kind of get some of that as well from the fairy godmother that, you know, she basically says, you know, there's always these critiques of like, well, why didn't the stepmother do anything while, you know, or not the stepmother, why didn't the fairy godmother do anything while Cinderella was being forced to be a servant in her own home? And the movie answers that question. The The movie answers most of the questions that people like to bring up over and over. And the answer is that Cinderella actually had it handled before that point. She was doing what she could. She was finding a way to live in the world and that was the first moment that she gave up hope that she could make you know the life that she wanted that was when she stopped believing in dreams and that's why the fairy godmother showed up then and i think that that's such a critical point that you know cinderella was doing everything she could she was making you know the life that she was able to make there was a point where she could not do it anymore on her own and that's when she needed the help i don't know i feel like that's such an important part of the narrative that gets left out in so many popular understandings of it you found some walt disney quotes that i think back that up you know my my favorite one of these i think actually comes from walt on one of the television show uh shows that he did where he was comparing Cinderella to Snow White, handling the small uh, maquettes of the characters. And talking about Cinderella, uh, she believed in dreams all right, but she also believed in doing something about them. When Prince Charming didn't come along, she went right over to the palace and got him. And of course, he's simplifying that in his own Walt style. But I think what I like about this is that it shows one, you know, Walt's values around like hard work and all these things that are like really baked into a lot of the ways that the the studio tells these stories comes right through uh, Walt's own mouth in this. But it, it, it does also show how they were thinking about it in terms of trying to make her at least somewhat of an active protagonist compared to even other versions of this same story that audiences would have been familiar with. Walt believed in Cinderella and it's it's extremely common in sources around this story to hear that, you know, similar to some of the other movies we've talked about, Walt saw this as his story, that, you know, he was this bright, talented young man who had the world at his feet, and something went wrong, as in, you know, the world started ending, and, you know, he lost it, and he had to get this magic moment, his Cinderella moment, to come back into the greatness of the world. And I think that thinking about it that way, you know, Walt does not see himself as a passive character waiting for the audience to like something. Walt is the guy who decided to jump on board sound. He is the one who decided to jump on board Technicolor. He made so many advancements 
I think that if we view Cinderella as this kind of figure stand in for Walt, she did everything she could. And the world just wasn't going to let her get away with it until she had her miracle. Uh, I will say my favorite of the Walt quotes, because this is such a Walt thing to say, comes from Walt Disney and American Original. And this is just such a good quote. Just for those of you who are listening out there, we are currently on the first day of the SAG strike. And of course, uh, we, are, we have been in the midst of the writer's strike. And that always makes us think about Disney's own animator strike, which Walt was not a fan of, and Walt did not like unions. And as it turns out, neither does the modern Disney company. And so Walt said, you know, he was thinking about the fact that a fairy godmother just gives until midnight, which I believe the movie says is four hours at the ball. And he says, well, the fairy godmother union set this up. If she was able to perform miracles that lasted, she'd be out of business. Such that's just such a Walt thing to say about, you know, unions and selfish uh magic uh miracle makers. No, I, I really love that quote, and I think that when we open our merch store, we should definitely have a fairy godmother union t shirt. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> but no, it, it that is a total Walt quote because again, the the union according to Walt, was maybe the worst thing that ever happened to him, and he would blame them for anything that he possibly could. You know, I think another secret to this movie's success is Eileen Woods, who was the voice of Cinderella. Uh, she had had her own radio show and eventually went on to do television. She also did performance tours during the war, as well, including performing for FDR and Harry Truman. In 1948, she put together a demo of the music for Cinderella as a favor for Jerry Livingston and Mac David, who were two of the songwriters. She was offered lead in just a few days despite hundreds of women formally auditioning. Mark Davis modeled elements of the animation on the way that she would move during recordings. And according to Woods, Walt was very involved in the dialogue and voice acting in Cinderella. Quote, he came in every single day we recorded. He came in at the end of the day to check everything out. He really made changes that were once in a while major, beautiful changes. And he always had such an imagination going on. He was the only true visionary I think I ever worked with. Uh, when Walt would come in at the end of re recording every day, the other three directors would have been arguing over and over. Walt would come in and sit down and play the tape. He never looked up when he was listening. He'd always sat with his head in his hand listening. He would make one suggestion and we'd do it his way and it would always be right, always. Which may be a, an overstatement of, Walt, of, of Walt's genius, but, but I, I do appreciate it. And it, again, shows his involvement here where we haven't necessarily seen that level of involvement for him in other projects. And I, I really like her voice and her voice performance. I think there's something really, just really important as to like, Cinderella is soft-spoken, but she kind of does have enough of a like sharp wit, you know, like when she's sort of making fun of the singing lessons that the stepsisters are getting and things like she doesn't, you know, it's not, I'm not gonna say like she doesn't, that she doesn't put up with with much but like she could go off if she wanted to but even the way that she talks to the mice and to lucifer is like very soft-spoken but very sort of like soft-spoken but clearly like intelligent and considerate and it makes her feel like a a fully a fully realized character and i think a lot of that comes from the voice absolutely i will say i really love her sarcasm one thing that 
I loved in in the Disney princess book that I talked about at the beginning, they were talking about, you know, the voice and the character designs and how that was all built. And they originally had an option uh, that would actually be very familiar to modern Disney fans that at the beginning, when she's woken up by the birds and she has to go to work, that her hair would be absolutely everywhere and she would be a complete mess, which eventually became Anna in Frozen. And that fits perfectly with her waking up and just being like, I was sleeping. I was having a dream. Leave me alone. Why do people want to make me work? I want to go back to sleep. I feel like she would have gotten such more of a reputation as just a relatable person who didn't want to work all the time if they had been able to really show in the designs all of the work that Eileen Woods was doing with the voice and the sarcasm and the wit in all of it. Because that often, I don't think, is what people think of when they think of Cinderella. They see, you know, the soft tone and the quiet bits that are also very important. She is kind. She is willing to put in the work and see if following the rules will get her where she wants to go. But she's also going to be bitter about it sometimes and make, you know, snide little remarks to her mouse friends. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you about the design stuff. And again, like this is maybe the first time I've really paid attention and watched it as an adult because it's not one of my like, you know, regular favorites that I revisit every few years on my own. But I, I it's certainly something I noticed from this watch that I hadn't really picked up on before. And I, one of the other things that we definitely want to make sure we share about Eileen Woods is this great story that she tells on one of the making of documentaries. I'm sure it's popped up in books everywhere. And it's one of those where like, if this didn't really happen, I don't care because it should have happened this way. <laughs> so she took her three-year-old daughter to a showing of Cinderella, like in a, like a public theater. And when her daughter heard Eileen Woods' voice come out of the movie, she got so excited and jumped up on her seat and pointed to the screen and yelled, that's my mommy. A woman sitting behind them said, isn't that cute? She thinks her mother is Cinderella. And Eileen Woods turns around to her and says, she is. And apparently the, the expression on this woman's face was just absolutely priceless. And I just, I love stories like that when people just, you know, get their expectations thrown back in their face. I think that's very funny. I feel like the sarcasm of Eileen Woods both in and out of Cinderella, just needs to be talked about more. Like, it's it's such a great feature and such an intriguing point for Cinderella as a character, and yet it gets talked about so rarely. Yeah, no, it was really nice seeing her. And and honestly, all of the all of the bonus features on the disc that I watch, I'm not sure how many of them are on Disney+, Plus, but a lot of them are on YouTube if you look, look them up by name. I'm just so glad they were able to capture all of these interviews with people like, you know, some of the nine old men who were still around, some of the people who knew the other nine old men, Eileen Woods and, and others who were just involved in the production. I'm glad that we got those like interviews, you know, on video so that, you know, we have access to them and we can watch them and, and hear them tell these stories on their own. Among some of the other voices, Eleanor, Eleanor Audley was the voice of Lady Tremaine. Uh, she later goes on to voice Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty, which makes sense because those feel like two of the most evil characters uh, in the Disney canon. Verna Felton was the voice of the fairy godmother. She also voiced six other Disney characters, including uh, the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland. She also voiced one of the mean uh, older elephants in Dumbo. 
that was her debut. We talked a little bit about her on that Dumbo episode. Uh, she actually passed away one day before Walt did, which is a weird coincidence. Louis Van Ruten voices the king and the Grand Duke. Walt reportedly said he related most to the king because he too was eager for grandchildren, uh, whatever it took. Makes sense. I also think anytime there's an authority figure in one of these movies that they are slightly caricaturing aspects of Walt into that character. And I just feel like with the king and the Grand Duke reminding the king about his blood pressure, I feel like that is absolutely something that was probably going on at the studio at some point or another. Lucille Bliss, who was known as the Girl with a Thousand Voices, voiced Anastasia. Cinderella was her first voice acting job. Later, she goes on to be the voice of Smurfette. James McDonald, who was the second voice of Mickey Mouse after Walt, voiced uh, the mice, appropriately enough. Prince Charming had two voices, William Edward Phipps as the speaking voice, while Mike Douglas was the uncredited singing voice. June Foray was the quote-unquote voice of Lucifer the Cat, uh, later known for her roles as Rocky in Rocky and Bullwinkle and Cindy Lou Who in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And then narration for Cinderella was provided by Betty Lou Gerson, who goes on to be the voice of Cruella DeVille. So we did talk a little bit about Eileen Woods and the way her voice impacted the character of Cinderella. How do you guys feel about the other voice performances in this movie? I feel like Lady Tremaine is very interesting as, you know, of because one thing that I noticed in the animation is that she has the same flash of green eyes that the evil queen did in Snow White. And yet by their voices, they are such different characters. The evil queen is very kind of sinister. She has the seductive thing going on, but she's she definitely feels like a villain. Whereas Lady Tremaine, I guess for me, it's like a Voldemort versus Dolores Umbridge kind of thing. Lady Tremaine feels like a really awful person who just happens to be your parent. She is the smartest person in the room. She knows how to manipulate people, how to get what she wants. And she knows that she has the power. And so it's vindictive and powerful in a completely different way than the evil queen was. And that is despite them being very similar character archetypes. So for me, I just think that Eleanor oddly just does such an impressive job with that, that she has to be my my favorite voice actor in this movie just because of how much she put into that performance. Yeah, and I, I really have to call out Verna Felton. I mean, the, the, the quote that Walt has about the fairy godmother where he goes, I think the fairy godmother should be elderly, old enough to have wisdom. She should have a certain sincerity. She should have no identity, just, just a type. And yet you have Verna Felton's voice work just creating a character almost out of nothing. Like there's not really, she doesn't obviously have an arc. She says it for one scene. She gets a song, which is great. You, just by the way she delivers the dialogue, you know, combined with the acting of the animation itself, you get that sort of warm godmotherly feeling from this character who was on screen for a total of like four minutes. Um, I want to follow up. So I actually agree and i think that sometimes with voices and animation and i have actually found some um like like research when i had done this at paramount obviously these are voices that stick with you way longer than sometimes the animation will and i also think about a lot 
kind of with playing like the the fairy godmother those you know how people quote like disney films even like older like it's kind of personified with voice actors so much like it feels like an elderly woman like talking to you in a way that you can envision outside its animation almost like a, a sweet old lady um if you will and and i think that's what i really appreciate about like voice actors too is how their voice can kind of like transcend throughout time where it's like something that's said and obviously not to talk about a very different disney movie but like you know the voice of lion king right like those kind of occurrences of like specific voice actors and how it can kind of you almost can even mimic their voice when you're quoting them and so yeah i and i also didn't know i think that's really interesting about um the narration she was also the future voice of corella deville um i don't know i, I kind of really like knowing that <laughs> i really like corella deville so i don't know <laughs> I am also a Disney villain lover, so seeing how many future Disney villains uh, were in this is really cool for me. One of the things as we talk about this that we'll talk about more in our discussion of Cinderella and in, spoiler alert, a uh, future bonus episode, is that we have to talk a little bit about the live action uh, adaptations when it comes to Disney movies like this. And while... The Cinderella live action is one of the only ones that's held up as being like a good adaptation. I do wonder how much of their failure comes down to the iconicity of the voice actors. That, you know, you could have an amazing cast that, if they had done it on their own, would truly be stunning. But they're never going to be that original, you know, group of amazing talents that we all kind of grew up on. Well, and, and so much of those remakes, you know, are, especially for the more iconic movies, like, I feel like there's something about Cinderella that makes it, I think, really easy to adapt and readapt, even even sort of readapting the Disney version, whereas watch, like, The New Little Mermaid, and, like, Melissa McCarthy does a great job as Ursula, but, like, she is kind of just doing a Pat Carroll impersonation to a certain extent. Like, there's enough of the original in there where watching it, you're just reminded of, you know, for me, the version I grew up with that I've seen a hundred different times. So, like, there is something about that really, those really special voice performances that, like, along with the drawing, create the character and give it, sort of, give it life that I feel like just, it, it hits that level of being iconic enough Megan, to your point, where like I just I don't think there is a way around it. You know, like there it's the voice and the drawing are so connected that I I feel like they're always going to let us down a little bit when it comes to those really sort of special characters that really stand on their own in the animated form. You know, one of the things that I think was so interesting with the live action Little Mermaid specifically was that there was kind of this passing of the torch directly from Jodie Benson to Halle Bailey. I think worked really well. Like they met each other on red carpet and there have been videos of, you know, blending the two voices. And I think that helped bridge that gap where it wasn't necessarily being stolen from the original voice actor, but it was being handed down, which doesn't necessarily happen with Cinderella, but because there were so many versions 
there was some degree of that. Whereas I think that, you know, maybe with some of the other live action versions, there's been that disconnect that makes it so, so difficult to get over the voices that we're so used to with the roles. Yeah, and it was really nice. Jody Benson also has a, a, a actual, like, physical? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jody Benson herself actually has a cameo in the live-action Little Mermaid, uh, which I think also helps. And, you know, with the live-action remakes, they're a little bit more beholden to casting somebody who physically evokes the animated character versus someone who sounds more like the animated character, I think. You know, I guess, unless you're, we're talking like Lion King or Jungle Book, which is a whole different uh, kind of thing, I guess. But um, but no, I, I think that's a really good point about Jodie Benson in particular and the role of Ariel. And um, just to kind of go back, that was the uh, point that I was thinking about, too. It's kind of like when you have something that's a live action, you already have the physical embodiment of the character that sometimes you don't focus on the voice as much because you want to focus on the uh physicality of the character which is also i have a lot of feelings about live action film um which i will always say for another time but just kind of thinking about it in that way too like if you're vis is your if you're visually watching this you don't and it's like so aesthetic you don't have to like upkeep certain other elements of the film and sometimes that can happen i'm not saying that's a fact or a statement i necessarily fully believe in but it's something i've noticed what i felt yeah so janae going on your point i think there's you know always kind of whether the images and the voices work together or whether they kind of fight against each other and that ends up becoming such a big deal when we have these live actions of do they look exactly right? Do they sound exactly right? Do they, you know, blend that goes really interestingly into the animation strategies that were used and the way they kind of drew and created each character, which is a particularly interesting point for Cinderella because they basically made a live action version first and then just drew it. Uh, whereas basically every other thing, at least largely, had animation as kind of the center. You know, Snow White had a few live action reference shots. They wanted to definitely get some of those scenes. But the animation was kind of the heart and soul of that movie. For Cinderella, they filmed live action reference shots for basically every single part of the film that involved humans. And there's some kind of pros and cons to this. It helped them pin down movement and expressions. It really helped them save money. But many of the animators found it fairly limiting because it didn't allow them to experiment to the full extent that animation allows. Ollie Johnston, for instance, uh, was talking about, you know, various different problems with it, but specifically the fact that this was very live action. And as he described it, quote, your characters were all nailed to the floor. There was nothing imaginative, no scenes that started inside of you because Walt had to find a cheaper way to make his picture. As we said before, he was broke. That was the way he chose to do it. And I think it was probably a very wise decision. I don't know how he could have done it otherwise, but as an animator, I sure was frustrated. 
there were, you know, great reasons. It saved money. It helped the animators capture these minute, subtle little details of expression, which helped add a little bit of the sarcasm to Cinderella that was put in by her voice. It helped to make more realistic characters, which was great given that Disney had a, um, let's say, complicated past when it came to animating realistic humans. But it also created this kind of world where each of the characters, especially Cinderella and Lady Tremaine and the fairy godmother, had kind of two to three different people that kind of were the core of that character beyond just the voices. For instance, Helene Stanley played uh, Cinderella for the live-action filming. She then went on to do the same for Aurora in Sleeping Beauty and Anita in 101 Dalmatians. Prince Charming was at least heavily based on Jeffrey Stone, and the fairy godmother, in a kind of weird twist, was acted in the live-action version or the live filming by Claire Dubray, but was designed to look like artist Ken O'Connor's wife, Mary Alice O'Connor. So there were kind of all of these influences. There was, you know, the voice and how the voice actor did expressions. There was how the live actor did the expressions and the movements. This ended up being a very, like, live human-driven movie rather than, you know, kind of the brainchild of these artists and animators that we're kind of more used to with this era of Disney movies. That being said, do you feel like, and again, I, I know we're jumping into the legacy a lot when we're talking about this, but the fact that this movie, you know, was pre-shot as live action, then animated, and then is viewed as one of the only kind of successful live actions, do you think that this strategy you know, helped the film, hurt it, maybe did both. What do you think having these very realistic guides for the characters kind of impacted the film as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think in digging into it, you know, in, in some of the, the research that I did for this, it definitely feels like a, a compromise, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, and not necessarily a bad compromise, but you know, it certainly saved money, if only because it sped up production, because the artist, you know, that just to elaborate a, a little bit more, it's not like they were tracing over the live action and just like, you know, turning the real drawing cartoon versions of the real people over top of the the filmed versions with the actors, but they would use that as reference. So they wouldn't have to like, you know, walk around the studio and like when Cinderella is like making her bed or the, the birds are, are helping and she's like turning over the pillow, like, you know, watch in a mirror as they handle the pillow and decide, decide exactly how to do it. They had reference material where they could just, it sped up the, the actual animating process. And some of the interviews talked a little less stern uh, than, than Ollie Johnston did about how it did help them as a as a starting spot, but there were times where they would make it sort of more cartoony than the live action, the, than the film version was, and other times where they, you know, hewed a little bit closer, you know, and I think that quote earlier where we see that, like, Cinderella is, like, very sort of, quote-unquote, like, on-model human, and so is Lady Tremaine, but then, like, you know, and I guess the prince, but then you get, like, the king and the Grand Duke, 
and the stepsisters, and they are like cartoon humans. And I think that contrast in styles actually makes the comedic bits of this movie funnier because you're watching it and you're like, oh, this is a, a like a funny person versus this is a like person person. I wanted to ask, do you think that if it was done in any other order, it would change the reception of the film? If that is a question that makes any sense. So kind of thinking of it being like, well, it was shot live act, live first, and then animated, like sometimes the, and like we had kind of pointed out to like those transitions. So, or the translation, if you will. So kind of like, if it was just naturally animation. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly would have been would have been different. And I think, you know, I think what's gained, like I said, from the reference material being shot in live action is sort of speeding up some of the things with like the way that props move, the way that people move. And I think that the animators, in this case at least, worked really hard to make make it not stiff. You know, Ollie Johnson's talking about the characters being nailed to the floor. But that also does help create a sense of like realism and at the very least like gravity, like the characters exist in a space and like, you know, they're not sort of floating above the floor either. So I think there is something, I think there's something really interesting in there. And it's not like it's the first time, like not that they had the deer act out Bambi because you can't train the deer to do that, but like they had live deer in the studio that they were drawing and learning how to draw. So I think in some ways it feels like an evolution of that, but I can also see how like, you know, if you're a very traditional animator or like you're more cartoon minded, like, you know, you really enjoy drawing characters like the stepsisters, or maybe as an animator, you're like, well, I don't want to deal with that at all. So let me, you know, I want to be on the team that's drawing the mice and the cat. Like I, I can see how those things can sort of all work together. And I think this movie actually has a really good balance of it because you have almost just as much focus on some of the animal storylines as you do on the human storylines. I think that, you know, one of the big things was when you're talking about Cinderella and you've got the context for it, Walt needed it done was a big thing and Walt needed it done cheaply. And a lot of, you know, we've talked before in some of our podcasts about the rules that Walt laid down of, you know, how much money you could spend and what you had to do to make sure that you didn't waste money. And, you know, looking back at this production, the animation itself only took six months. We talked about the story took 10 years, but the animation only took six months because they had the live action references. And I think that if they hadn't done it that way, it would have, number one, taken much longer. Uh, but I don't know that it would have worked because they would have run out of money. They would have had to spend so much money. I don't think we would have gotten the depth and the level of, you know, mood and intrigue that we got in the finished product. I mean, they had character designers create, you know, these human characters. Eric Larson and Mark Davis were both tasked with designing and animating Cinderella. Frank Thomas did Lady Tremaine and Mitt Call did uh, the fairy godmother, the king and the grand duke. They all did these kind of classic roles that we've seen in the earlier animated films. But they also look very similar to the live action versions. There are 
some great books and websites where you can see like shot for shot the connections and it does do a lot of help it does bring a lot of good so i think that having that meant that they could put the money where it needed to be and adding kind of the beauty and the aesthetics that we'll talk about in a minute that you know mary blair just really poured into this movie and i think if they hadn't done the live action first would have poured so much money into just building all of it from the ground up. I don't think it would be nearly the same quality of movie if it was ever finished at all. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Megan, that they might have just ran, literally just might have ran out of money or gone further in debt, or it would have cost so much that it would have made its money back. But again, they still would have been in the situation of every movie has to make more than you know, it has to be a success where the studio will cease to exist, basically. But it's, of course, it's time to talk about our podcast's favorite Disney person, I think, almost unequivocally at this point. So, Megan, do you want to talk about uh, Mary Blair's contributions to Cinderella? So, according, I just stole this quote uh, from the Queens of Animation because it really says all that we're going to say over the next, like, five minutes. Uh, quote, there was hardly a scene of Cinderella that Mary did not influence. You know, we talked earlier about the nine old men. We've talked before about how gender uh, played into the Disney company. And we, you know, sing the praises of the men that did so much. Wow, was Mary Blair connected to this? For instance, the studio just simply didn't have the time and the money to go as detailed as they had before. Um, I think I just keep going back to the first shot of Pinocchio, seeing, you know, moving around buildings and into windows and all of that was just stunning. They did not have that money. They did not have that time. And so Walt literally went to Mary Blair and said, I want you to trick the audience. I want you to make them think there's detail when there isn't. And it works. Again, before I read that, I saw the first, like, two minutes of the film and went, oh, wow, we have all this detail again. And then I rewatched it. And yeah, it's it's a lot of, like, sweeping color and blends of color that give, you know, the emotionality without all of the line work that we're kind of used to. Mary Blair also introduced modern fashion, uh, with Cinderella's dress being based on the newest Dior gowns and the glass slipper being based on the pump. Uh, she directly influenced the So This Is Love sequence. She actually worked with the music team and the animators to make sure that not only did the va- the dance advance the plot of the movie, but that audiences would feel what it felt like to fall in love through the way the colors and the design and the sound all blended together. You know, we always talk about Walt as the one who could figure out who had what talent and put them in that spot. Mary Blair really had kind of the conductor's mind where she could see all the different parts and how they could flow together to really make things better than the sum of their parts. So this was, you know, huge. This movie really was a point where Mary Blair was considered to be one of the top people at the studio, which did not always go well for her. Walt was, you know, pouring praise on Mary, which led to resentment from a lot of the men at the studio. 
there are a few specific examples where basically they said, huh, well, Walt just likes her because she's a woman. Uh, which is funny because Walt had basically fired every other major woman powerhouse at the studio at that point. Walt or their, you know, dwindling finances. This leads to if if you're watching the movie and there's a few scenes that feel a bit disconnected, they don't quite capture all of the, you know, detail and emotionality. That is the artists fighting Mary Blair's influ- influence because they felt like uh, she was, you know, being honored above them, which is an unfortunate thing because there are so many, you know, really great elements. Uh, a story that I really found interesting while reading this was that Mark Davis, who was responsible for animating the transformations from the fairy godmother, was specifically following the vision of Mary Blair, making sure that it was brought to life as she imagined it. Uh, And the argument of one of the books that I read for this was, this is wild to me, but somehow also horribly sad and believable. Mark Davis applied to the company and he got a letter back saying, sorry, we're not hiring women at the company right now. That was it. No, No comments on his work, nothing else. Just, sorry, we don't want women. And he went, um, I'm not a woman. Apparently, they misread it. They thought it said Mary or Marcy or something like that. And so he, you know, corrected that assumption. He got hired at the studio. He's actually been discussed as one of the least sexist uh, members of the group at the time because he had, weirdly enough, faced gender-based discrimination by the company and was really ticked off at the fact that, you know, a brilliant artist was having their work kind of spat on by people who were just jealous of her talent. Yeah, there's there's was some debate on a thing that I, on one of the bonus features I watched for this around, like, what's the most Mary Blair effort at Disney? And there were some people who cited Johnny Appleseed uh, that we had talked about or Alice in Wonderland. Uh, but this is certainly one that has a huge impact. One of the things I didn't know while watching that didn't jump out to me as a Mary Blair thing that definitely is, is the way that the background changes color during the scene where the stepsisters are ripping apart Cinderella's dress and the colors start to reflect the emotions in the scene and there isn't really a lot of background detail. Uh, That was a Mary Blair innovation, uh, which I didn't realize. And again, we talked about on a recent episode, we talked about Across the Spider-Verse and I feel like you know, it's it's that same kind of concept about the world of the animation reflecting the mood of the characters. I think that it's just, you know, so hard to really look at anything from this era and oversell Mary Blair. I think it's only possible to undersell her in a lot of this uh, because she didn't necessarily receive as much credit as she probably should have. One of the things that was just so fascinating to me was Disney, by this point, had started to get much more segmented. Uh, Early on, you know, we had, you know, the same group of people were helping come up with the music for Fantasia as we're coming up with the story in Fantasia and then drawing it. And we saw a lot of kind of breakups into the different portions of the company at this stage. And it was just really interesting to me that Mary Blair was connected with the music side of it. I mean, I I know today we think a lot of how much the music 
kind of influences Disney movies. But to a large extent, up until this point, the animation and the music had started to kind of be separate elements. Uh, they were synced together, but they weren't necessarily kind of meshed together. And that definitely seems to be something that kind of developed from the story of the music of this movie that was also kind of piecemeal, similar to the story building. For instance, in 1946, Larry Morey and Charles Walcott were responsible for composing the songs for the movie. They made five songs for the movie, none of which ended up in the final product. They also had planned to recycle an unused fantasy sequence from Snow White with the song Dancing on a Cloud to be used as Cinderella and the Prince were waltzing. And then they kind of were dropped out of nowhere. In 1948, Disney hired MacDavid, Jerry Levingston, and Al Hoffman to compose the six songs that did end up in the movie. They were the first composers to be hired entirely from outside the company. And they were actually hired, weirdly enough, because they had previously written a song called Chibaba Chibaba, My Bambino Go to Sleep, which was kind of a nonsense Italian-ish song that had become very popular and partially ended up inspiring uh, Bippity Boppity Boo. When they came in and started making those connections with Mary Blair, that kind of started adding to the depth of the animation tying in with the music. Oliver Wallace and Paul Smith made the score for the instrumentals, uh, but they actually did so after the film was animated, which was a departure from the more traditional Mickey Mousing technique of kind of building them in sync. Through the production of Cinderella, they ended up launching the Walt Disney Music Company. They also started the character merchandising department, which did a lot of work with the designs and music from the film, and essentially made Walt and Roy boatloads of money beyond ticket sales. Part of what they did was releasing the music as a separate soundtrack, which sold about 750,000 copies in its first release and hit number one on the Billboard pop charts. This was a very successful score. And they also had the innovation in, in Oh Sing Sweet Nightingale, where Walt suggested that Woods actually record three versions of her singing, harmonizing with herself, which became one of the first examples of overdubbing. It's a little bit debated about who did this first, uh, but Walt famously said, here I was paying uh, the Andrews sisters when I could have just hired one singer to sing with themselves, believing that the blend sounded even more impressive. Uh, but we continue to see the way that that music and the voices and the animation were woven together, particularly with Oh Sing Sweet Nightingale, where you have the stepsisters absolutely butchering the song, and then Cinderella singing it so sweetly that she eventually is scrubbing in the soap bubbles. The duplication of the bubbles in the animation lines up with the duplication of her voice, uh, and really just kind of starts blending all of these different areas together. Yeah, when I was looking into overdubbing and, you know, apologies to our listeners for not doing a complete history of overdubbing as a concept as much as I wanted to. 
supposedly they actually did use it in make my music for the whale that's how they got the effect of making it sound like three different singers that were all actually nelson eddy but this was cited a bunch of times as like the first canonical use of overdubbing so you know even disney sometimes forgets about the package films uh, which i think is a little understandable but i think it's used really well here and it's funny, this is one of those movies where, like, as we're talking about it and we bring up specific sequences, I'm like, oh, maybe that's my favorite sequence in the movie. Like, oh, I really like that sequence. And it just keeps happening every single time, which I think is, again, a testament to how much this was sort of planned out and talked about all the way through, you know, and just that sequence with the bubbles. Again, it's the kind of thing that, like, of course, now you can do it in live action, but at the time, it's something that you could really only do in animation properly. With all of that said, and, you know, I, I completely agree with you. As we talk about things, I'm like, wow, this section was so cool. No, this was just really amazing. And, and all of that. Since we've been talking about music, and since I know for all of us, to some extent, the music came to us before the movies with a lot of Disney movies, uh, partially because of the vault, partially just because of how much money and advertising Disney put into their music. I just wanted to take a moment here to pause and just ask you guys, what song stands out to you the most? Do you have a favorite? Do you have something that uh, gets stuck in your head? Do you have something you don't like from this movie? Just, you know, what do you think about kind of the music and the soundtrack as a whole? Oh man, that is uh, such a good question. I feel like the work song, and I know that may sound so silly, but I remember in elementary school, like that was the song we would like sing together. So um, to kind of encourage us to be more productive. So I always kind of think of the work song um, in that way. Cause I also had like a teacher who was like a huge <laughs> Disney and Cinderella fan. Um, so I think the work song has always stuck with me as like one of my favorites. A dream is a wish your heart makes. That's the one where I'm like, if you don't like that one, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Everyone loves that one. And yeah, I'm going to say like those two specifically are my favorite. One thing I, I noticed about the music and as we're talking about comparing this to Snow White is how much the songs also kind of parallel Snow White. So we have, you know, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes versus Someday My Prince Will Come. We have the work song here versus whistle while you work. Like, it's just interesting that there are very specific ways you can sort of line up some of the aspects of these movies in parallel. But I will say the work song is probably the one that I end up, you know, humming or singing the most. But I do also love This Is Love uh, or So This Is Love. Like, that's, you know, that that's one that really, I think, always sticks with me and one that I end up, like, humming while doing the dishes randomly. You know, but... I also obviously love Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo. It's not my favorite to sing, but it's such a great sequence in the movie. Like in the context of the movie, it's probably my pick for the best song. But it's weird, like outside of them, all the other ones are the ones that come to mind first. I think that one of the kind of sad uh, but interesting things is we talked about, you know, overdubbing and the technological shift with uh, Sing Sweet Nightingale. I didn't know that was a song in this movie. So it 
that's one of the songs that I think doesn't get as much attention. I also didn't have much of a past with the work song, although it sounds like both of you certainly did. I, I will say for the last week, I have had a strange medley of A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, Bibbidi Boppity Boo, and So This Is Love, which are very different tonally songs, but all just kind of blending together as I have gone about doing, you know, laundry or, or whatever else needs to be done. I think the whole musical just kind of flows together and it's very easy to connect you know, one song to the next and, you know, the weird Mary Poppins supercalifragilisticexpialidociousness of Bippity Boppity Boo, along with, you know, the, the yearning of the I Want song and Anyway, all of them, all of them uh, are are amazing and will be stuck in my head for for far longer than I maybe want them there. <laughs> I would also like to add, and I don't know how in depth everyone is on their TikTok usage, but I'm on TikTok every other day. I will not lie about that. Both songs, so this is love and Bippity Boppity Boo, have actually become really popular on TikTok recently. So everyone has been using the sounds and it's just something that I've noticed and people are almost kind of creating their own Cinderella moment to So This Is Love. And it's very visually, aesthetically, uh, very aesthetically pleasing in that way. And it's also just interesting to see people's own takes on it and how they kind of reimagine that song years later on a social media platform. Also the interesting ways that people uh, really incorporate that sound to music as well. Yeah, as a uh, a man in his uh, late thirties, I will see that trend whenever it turns into Instagram reels because I am not on TikTok. But I, I look forward to seeing how how people use that. I think it is interesting how these songs continue to sort of live on, and you know, just things I've noticed from Instagram reels. There's a bunch of Disney stuff that like. I don't know if people know that that's where that comes from. Like, there's a musical cue from the Aristocats that's been very popular in those short videos that I I would imagine most people don't know that that's what that's from. And so it's interesting that both, like, very popular sort of, like, you know, canonical Disney classics are getting remixed as well as people discovering other musical cues that just fit social media really well. I am on TikTok, but I'm apparently on a different side of TikTok because I haven't seen that. Uh, I definitely saw the um, song Cinderella Snapped uh, going on a loop for a while there uh, about essentially, no, I'm not going to play the classic Cinderella role. I'm doing my own thing. I do think that you know, these songs have become so, so deeply ingrained in our culture that they really are everywhere. My problem is always parody songs, because I'll often listen to them either before or certainly more frequently than the real song. Uh, so, for instance, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, of course I know the song. John Cozart, otherwise known as Paint, has the After Ever After series which takes uh, the like main theme or the main character songs or the Disney princesses and makes them really horrible, demented things. So for instance, his version of A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes is basically that 
Cinderella told the prince, like, oh, yeah, these mice and birds were really helping me, like, find you. And he puts her in an insane asylum. And so sadly, that's the song that was playing in my head when I was watching this. So I think that they really do become remixed and retwisted in such a way that it's it's hard to even comprehend what these songs would have been back in the 50s before we had so many different you know, social media avenues to start twisting and remixing and redubbing, uh, as the case sometimes is, uh, these classic songs. I think that there is just so much to talk about here, and frankly, that's a bit of a problem. So we think that it's best to take a break here and come back next week for the contemporary release and legacy of this major Disney film. In the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela.